All right. Good morning, everyone. Quick uh, clarification. Uh, Greg said Ash Wednesday, 6.30. He was correct. If you notice up there, it said 6 o'clock. What was on there was mistaken. Greg was correct. Um, and, you know, as we're talking about marriage ministry, you'd be surprised how far that goes if you just did what I did. Hey, you were correct. What was, I was mistaken. You were correct. So, Greg, that's the only time that's going to happen in this relationship. So, the handout says 6. Yeah, it's 6.30. 6.30 is Ash Wednesday. I think there was some confusion because last year's timing was uh, weird because it was Valentine's Day. And Ash Wednesday really doesn't set the mood for Valentine's Day. I mean, you get ash on your head with the cross symbolizing death comes for us all. You are but dust and ash now. Let's go eat some chocolates. Oh, we can't because I'm abstaining from chocolates for Lent. So it's just bad. So 6.30, Valentine's Day does not interrupt. Okay, one other announcement before we get going. Uh, as many of you know, we, we lease a couple spaces outside of this, what we'll call like main, main sanctuary building for the Gilroy campus. There's a bank building uh, in that direction. We lease about half that entire space. We have about more than 10 Staff members have offices there, our junior high rooms there, and some other spaces there. Additionally, direct, like exactly this direction, there's the piazza space where we have a high school room, and the high school room uh, is where our high school meets and uh, various other ministries. Um, we are choosing, the update is we're choosing not to renew our lease at that high school space directly behind us for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it's mainly the high school room, although we use it and some of you use it for other various ministries, but the main purpose for that was to give the high school ministry space to meet. And about a year ago, we brought high schoolers into the main service with us for the first and second service rather than having their own separate high school service on Sunday mornings. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the biggest and most important is that all the research, all the stats are clear that even though for a high schooler, and if you're a high school in the room, you know this to be true, your own high school service contextualized for you may be cooler and you like more. The research is clear is that if you can be a part of a larger group on Sunday mornings, you're more likely to maintain uh, being a church member and a Christian for the rest of your life. So the key isn't just to make a cool junior high ministry or high school ministry. The, cool, the thing is to make a ministry that where everyone can feel that they are a part of. Now, we still have individual high school ministry stuff on other days of the week, so it's kind of like a both and, but that was a big decision for us. So with not having to have that on Sunday mornings, that played a factor into us not renew, renewing our lease. The second had to do with some of the restrictions during business hours because this is such a nice facility behind us. You couldn't have amplified noise. So it's like, I don't know what ministries besides the prayer ministry that you could use that doesn't use any amplified noise during business hours. So we were really constricted in how we could use the facility. And as you know, in this area, cost-wise, everything is going up, lease, rents, houses. And so we could have cho chosen to renew it, but it was just a kind of a stewardship issue of like, what's going to be the best bang for our buck? What's long-term the right decision? And so we're choosing not to renew that. Be praying for us because we have some good problems. We don't have enough space. Uh, if you're a ministry leader, you know that it's very hard to book a room to do ministry here because there's like always stuff going on. There's always something uh, in Hollister as well, we're trying to find more space or additional space or a way to create more space. Hollister's second service continues to be packed out. We're now averaging just under 400 people at the Hollister campus. So everywhere we look, yeah, that's great. Um, we have space issues. Uh, but we also want to use our resources, the money, the tithes and offerings that come in uh, in the most wise way to advance God's kingdom. So please be praying for that. We want to come up with some creative solutions, how to continue to have space for high school ministry, etc. We've already have some solutions, but we're looking at some other options. So that's the announcement for that. All right. Now the apology. If you've been here two weeks in a row as a faithful Christian, you're going to hear the exact same intro I gave both of those weeks. But I promise you this is the last time you're ever going to hear it. So you got to get it. The intro is very important for the rest of the series, and it's extremely important for us this Sunday. But after this, it's gone. And if you're over it, I'm sorry, just sit through it. I'll go through fast. Okay. The series is called Sojourners and Exiles. 
And we talked about how when Peter calls New Testament Christians sojourners and exiles, he's not just using the dictionary.com definition of sojourner and exile. Sojourner in the dictionary is someone who doesn't stay put. They go from place to place and they live their life like nomadically. So that's the dictionary definition. But Peter has that word sojourner shaped and colored by the stories and narratives of the Old Testament. So when he tells a New Testament Christian, you're a sojourner, he's wanting them to imagine the Israelites wandering around in the desert wilderness for 40 years. And this is critical imagery, because in that 40 years of wandering, they had just left slavery and bondage in Egypt and are on their way to the promised land. So there's a parallel. Just as the Israelites were delivered from slavery and sin and wandering and sojourning on their way to the promised land, the New Testament believer has been delivered from slavery and bondage, sin, not Egypt, and is now sojourning on their way to the promised land of promised lands, God's kingdom, the heavenly reality. The word exile is the same thing. He's not just saying, okay, you're exiled, like when you grow up and you're 18 or 21 or 25, your, your mom and dad say, get out of the house, you're exiled. Like, that's exile. But exile in the biblical narrative is different. The exile of the Old Testament happens in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians invade Israel. They destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take many of the remaining survivors back as captives into Babylon. So the exile is about God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, learning to live faithfully in pagan Babylon. So likewise, as a New Testament Christian, Peter is saying, oh, you're an exile. You must learn what it's like to live faithfully in a pagan foreign land that's ultimately not your home. You're sojourning on your way to the promised land. And so those, the story of the New Testament Christian is supposed to parallel the story of Israel. This is the last time you'll see this weird image. Showed this for two weeks. This is an image representing the over 67,000 references, cross-references the Bible has. So every time the Bible references another verse in the Bible, that is represented by one line in this picture, and there's over 67,000. We're zoomed out, but there's 60,000 cross-references. And we talked about this like hyperlinks. So the Bible in one verse in the New Testament may say something or quote something or allude to something that's from the Old Testament. And it's like a hyperlink. If you follow the link and go to that chapter, oftentimes that chapter then has other references and hyperlinks to other things. And so we use the example of Wikipedia. Let's say you're a grandpa now, and you don't like Star Wars, but your grandkids are. Your grandkids are into Star Wars. So you go online and do some research. You Google Star Wars on Wikipedia comes up. You're doing research. Oh, Luke Skywalker. Oh, this guy's pretty cool. Oh, his dad's in the story. Let's check out what... Oh, hey, man, his dad was a bad dude. Oh, but first he was a good guy. How, well, what made him a bad guy? Oh, Anakin, man, Obi-Wan had the high ground. What are you thinking, dude? And you keep doing the research, and it goes, Anakin. And then you're like... Why wasn't he allowed on the Jedi Council? And there's all these other characters that are on the Jedi Council. And it references back and forth more stories and narrative. That's what the Bible is doing nonstop. So if you were to zoom, if you were to look at this chart, all those little white squiggly lines are the bo- on the bottom are different chapters in the Bible. And if you were to zoom in on a small section, you would see that even just in a few chapters, there's literally hundreds of lines pointing to other verses in the scripture, referencing themselves. This is the first 20 chapters of Genesis. Um, So just take that first white bar column that you see out of that. um, There's dozens and dozens of lines that are going to other places in the Bible where Genesis 1-1 is referenced. This concept is critical today, and you're going to see an example of it. And we have to learn to read the Bible in this manner. We let the Bible define words. If Peter calls you a sojourner and an exile, if you just define that by the dictionary's definition, you're going to not know what he's actually trying to communicate. So, week three, 1 Peter, 
1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth of a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. It's one of those commands that we talked about several weeks ago where it's easy to understand but very difficult to do. So it's like, Christians, love each other. Just love each other. It's like, you, you know what you should do. Love each other. Then you actually try to do it. It's very, very difficult because there's difficult people and you're not always in a good mood. And even maybe harder than that is, what do you mean by love? Because love in the English language has been so hijacked, it's almost beyond rescue. Like, how do you use the word love in our language? Like, I love sushi. And I do. I love sushi. Oh, and someone sees... Uh, Man, man, I love them shoes. Those are some good shoes, man. Or it's like, I love The Walking Dead. It's my favorite TV show. It's not my favorite TV. I've never even seen an episode. I, I, don't, I don't have TV. I'm too dorky. It's not too dorky. Because there's still stuff you could watch online without having a TV. But you get what I'm saying? It's like, I love The Walking Dead. I love shoes. I love sushi. What about in relationships? Well, as long as, as, long as people love each other, no one's getting hurt... They love each other. What's, what's wrong with that? Or um, we're going to move in together to see if we truly love each other. Or uh, he didn't feel loved by his wife, so he found another woman, and then he felt better, and he felt good. It's like you see how love is just used. Like, what does that even mean? And so you have to let the Bible define what love is. And the place you want to look most for what love looks like is God and his relationship to his people, and specifically in Jesus, his life, teachings, death, and resurrection. And there's other places scattered. So like in Philippians, Paul says, he's speaking about love and unity in the church, and he says, put the interest and concerns of others before yourself. So we may not have to have love completely figured out, but you could start there, right? Put the interest and, concern, the interest and concerns of others before your own. Just start with that Try that for a day. See how, see how long you make it. An hour or two, man. It's like, as soon as you get to work, you already lost it. So it's like, love each other earnestly. And then this is critical. He attaches the idea or the command to love each other to an idea about a perishable and imperishable seed. And this language is really weird, so we can get caught up and lost in it. But it's actually beautiful imagery and, and a little bit more simple to understand than at first glance. Peter says there's two types of seeds, a perishable and imperishable. When you think of a perishable seed, think of someone who plants literal seeds like in a garden and a flower pops up. It has a beauty, it's lovely, but it's only here temporary. It's not eternal. It dies. It doesn't last forever. Likewise, your life from your physical birth is born of the perishable seed. You had a physical birth, and you are going to die. It will be perishable. It will cease to be. However, Peter's saying, you, if you're a Christian, have also been born of the imperishable seed. You've been born again. And the spiritual rebirth of the Christian is a seed born imperishable. It's everlasting. It doesn't fade. It doesn't fail. It doesn't die. So likewise, since you've been born again, this is the inner logic, since you've been born again of Christ, his spirit has made you new. The, the imperishable seed is everlasting because all of that love each other earnestly. The Christian community should be marked out by a love for one another that's distinct from any other community on the face of the earth. We should do the love each other thing better than any community on earth, precisely because Christ has saved us and put his spirit inside of us. So the image of the seed is exactly what Peter goes to next. He just, he, he uses this. He says, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So again, there's perishable and imperishable. And the perishable things, the things of this earth, it's like grass. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Which, if you're honest with yourself, the first thing you should be asking is, how much of my life is spent on the perishable, on that which is here today, gone tomorrow, that which is like the flower that looks beautiful for a moment and then is gone. 
all human achievement and accomplishment that's not directly connected to Christ and his kingdom will perish. It's not going anywhere. No matter how nice the car is, no matter how cool the house is, it perishes. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having a house or a car, but it means if you're investing in the perishable, you're wasting your time. Invest in that which is connected to Christ and his kingdom. Most of the stuff we spend our time on is it's not worth it. You ever do something for like five or six hours and you just go, that was a complete waste of time. You start off like, you got an Amazon Prime account, and so there's always like free TV shows. You start watching one. You don't even know why. You're barely interested in it. But you watch one episode, and now you're telling yourself, I think I'm hooked. I got to see this through. There's like 10 episodes left in the season. But little did you know that that show's been out for four years. So you got five seasons. And I just, by the end of you, are like, what, what, was, what was that even worth? What did it do? And we're all guilty of this. Me, you, we pick things and we value them as if they they have more value than they really are. And Peter says, no, focus on what really matters. Now, there's something going on here that's super, that's really cool. This is not, this quote, all flesh is like grass, is not a Peter original. It's not a Peter original. He's actually quoting the Old Testament. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. And there's two pieces of context that make Isaiah 40 come to life. One's historical and one's literary. So what's the historical context? In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah is prophetically speaking to people in exile. Do you see why Peter might want to quote him? So he's quoting the prophet Isaiah as he's prophetically speaking to the Jewish men and women who are in exile in Babylon. And the exile for them lasts roughly 70 years. So some people get to see the end of the exile, but some people are born in Babylon and die in Babylon. You were born in Babylon 65 years later, you're still in exile, still in slavery in Babylon, and you're going, what's going on? So some of the people while in exile are giving up on the promises of God. Some of them are assimilating into Babylonian culture. Some people are wondering, is God powerful enough? Is God actually good? Is he going to come through and deliver us like he said he would? And so Isaiah wants to talk to these people who might be getting used to their time in Babylon, assimilating or forgetting the promises of God. He says, look, even if it's been 65 years, even if you were born in slavery and you will die in slavery, you need to understand that God will stay true to his promises for the word of the Lord remains forever. Your suffering, this exile, is temporary. In the big picture, it is a blip compared to the glory that God has prepared for you. So Isaiah says, don't forget it. You're in exile. Don't get comfortable. This is not your home. And even if you die here, God's promises will still stand. And he's prepared a way for you. That's the historical context. Now the literary context in Isaiah 40 is very important. Because what did we just have? We had a hyperlink. We had one of those references. We had 1 Peter reference back to the prophet Isaiah. He directly quotes him. But you have to understand that the authors of the Bible, when they quote things, they don't quote things like us. So when we quote a Bible verse, we say like Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verses 1 through 2. And we just think of verses 1 through 2. Or like John 3, 16, probably the most famous Bible verse. You think, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When I say John 3, 16, does anyone think of immediately, though, the woman at the well and Nicodemus in the night? It's like not the first thing that come to your mind, right? The Bible at this time doesn't have chapter or verse markers. And Peter, who's writing this, doesn't have like an ESV study Bible next to him with like chapter markers, verse markers, and cross-references. In Jesus' day, there's a synagogue and they have some Torah scrolls. And you hear the stories again and again and you learn them, but you don't have the, your, there's no printing press, not your Bible to open up to. So when Peter and the New Testament authors quote a bit of the Old Testament, you have to understand they have the whole surrounding context in mind. 
And so one of the coolest things you could do in your Bible reading is when you see one of these hyperlinks, these references, go back and read the chapter and you'll see that sometimes the entire section, that the inner logic is what's being played out in the New Testament. So he's not just making a quote here. He wants to know the inner logic of Isaiah 40 and then apply it, apply it to his current situation. So what's, what is that inner logic, that hyperlink pointing to? Isaiah 40, again, is Isaiah prophetically speaking to Jewish people in exile in Babylon. And he wants to encourage them that their exile will end because the word of the Lord remains forever. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Exile is going to end. You're going to go back home. You're going to go back to Israel someday. Then he says, this is how it's going to happen. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So exile will end how? God. God himself will come to end Israel's exile. And what is the image? It's a highway in a desert being prepared. There's going to be a giant highway in the desert, and God himself is going to come to Israel to end her exile. Now, how many of you recognize this Bible verse? Raise your hand. But do you recognize it from Isaiah or somewhere else? You read it from the New Testament, from the Gospels. So, Mark chapter 1 begins by quoting this passage. Mark is the bi- one of the four biographical accounts of the life, death, and G- of Jesus. And so Mark is now quoting Isaiah to begin his story of the life of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Before we get into that, let's remember how we got here. This is tricky. First Peter is talking about all flesh being like grass because he wants New Testament Christians under persecution to remember that this is not home. And so he quotes Isaiah, who's, telling a, who's giving a similar message, not to New Testament Christians, but Jews who are in the exile in Babylon. To not get comfortable, this is not your home, God's going to end your suffering. As he's doing that in Isaiah, Isaiah says this Bible verse, which is then picked up by Mark, and Mark then applies this, return, this idea of God coming on a highway to whom? Jesus. Who is the one who comes on the highway to bring about liberation in the New Testament? It's Jesus. In Isaiah, it's God himself. So you see what Mark's trying to do. God himself has come to end exile. And he's come in the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's even crazier than that. Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, then he says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Was that in Isaiah? This is a trick question. That wasn't in Isaiah. What we just read before was not in Isaiah. But yet Mark just is saying, this is in the prophet Isaiah. What is from the prophet Isaiah is verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So you're going like, did Mark make a mistake? No. That first part before verse 3, behold, I send my messenger before your face, is from Malachi chapter 3. And Mark knows what he's quoting, but he wants you to do something. He wants you to go check out what's in Malachi chapter 3. And then he wants you to know that it's directly connected to Isaiah because all of this stuff is directly connected to Jesus ending about not just Israel's exile, but the exile of all exiles. So you see, see how it's crazy. And by the way, if you go read Malachi 3, which you should, there's going to be a host of other little hyperlinks and cross-references going all around the place. When you learn to read the Bible like this, it's like an adventure all the time. But the re- the, I, I did all this for two reasons. First, to show you how the Bible works the inner logic of scripture. When you see a quote, don't just read the quote from the Old Testament. Find out what the themes, the structure, and the inner logic are, and then see if the New Testament author is going to apply those. Because one of the, oh, there's so much cool stuff. I don't have time to get into it. 
One of the things in Isaiah, after chapter 40, what he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about a suffering servant. Guess what Peter talks about next week? One who is rejected by his people and who suffers. It's like, it's in his brain. It's, it's saturating his writing. Okay, so that was the first reason. The second reason is to show us what Peter's trying to tell you as a New Testament Christian. Peter wants you to know much of what you spend your time and energy on is wasteless. It's futile. It's pointless. It's like a, a flower that's here today, gone tomorrow. Therefore, spend your time on that which is imperishable. And what's one of the things you could do to spend your time on that which is imperishable? Love each other. Love each other. Have the Christian community marked out with a love that is different than any community you've ever seen. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Then he goes on, and he gives you like what not to do to conclude. So first he tells you to love, and this is the reason why. And then if you want some practical things like of what not to do, here they are. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So look at the string at the beginning of words. There's malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Do you see a commonality in all of those? The command is to love each other so that there's unity and oneness in the family of God. Then he says, don't do these things. And the things he lists are all things that directly contribute to the disruption of the oneness of the body of Christ. So envy, hypocrisy, slander, gossip, these types of things. So your question today is you should be asking yourself, am I guilty of any of those? Hypocrisy, envy, because you know, you, you can be good at hypocrisy. Like no one at church knows your hypocrisy. Everyone thinks it's great. You can be real good at it. I'll tell you this though. If you've got a family, I know who, who knows your hypocrisy. Your kids do. They see it. They know it. What about slander or gossip? Is there ever slander or gossip in the church world? It's like Christians don't do that. It's like, no, sometimes churches are like breeding grounds for gossip and slander. You ever been at a small group and like 45 minutes into it, you realize all we've done is be critical of other people in the church? Or the church, it's like, this is, this is like all the reasons why the church I go to is wrong or bad, and I got it all figured out. Like, we've all done that stuff, right? Maybe not all, there's some saints here. There's some saints, but, you know, or like, I've done this, so. It's like, you hear a sermon, and there's like three or four things you should and can be convicted on and be applying to your life, but you're going to focus on the thing where, you know, the one part that you disagreed with or where the pastor was wrong, and he, uh, he doesn't know what he's talking, talking about, and you go home in the car. You know, you ever done that? I'm expecting everyone at this church to say, no, we've never done that, pastor. <laughs> no, but you've done it. You know, I've done it. We've all done it. Because, you know, we know better or something. We're all guilty. Of it. And so, so Peter's saying, you got you to watch this stuff because it creeps in. And I'm telling you, man, this stuff, God has been gracious to this church and protected us from this type of stuff. But churches divide and divide and divide. And like sometimes they divide over nonsense. There's been churches who have split because of like the color of the carpet or the paint. Like, I can't believe we're painting this. This is shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This polka dotted walls. That, that may be worth splitting over. That, that indeed may bring shame to the. And then he says, no, rather than doing this, you need to be like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. So you're longing for spiritual milk, spiritual food, should, be that, should run parallel with a newborn baby wanting the milk of his mother. And some of you are in this phase of life, right? You got young kids? Some of you remember it. Some of you might have not ever experienced it. Uh, my wife and I are in that phase. So just let me illustrate to you what that looks like. It means regularly, consistently, that baby is going to demand milk. And if they don't get the milk, they get cranky. And they don't sleep through the night because they need milk. 
Every few hours, they want milk. They can't get enough of it. The baby never goes, Mama, I'm going to store up for three days so you can sleep better. <laughs> See God like that. Regularly, consistently, habitually. Okay, what I'd like to do is, is circle back and close with something. The passage that is talking about the perishable and imperishable. And I'd like to address two different groups in the room. It's probably an oversimplification, but what I'd like to do is to divide the room into two groups. First group should get something from this passage, and the other group should get something different. That's the beauty of God's word. It could function as a double-edged sword. So for some people, it can convict, and some people, it can comfort at the same time. And this passage should convict some of us and others it should comfort. So let's talk with group one and whom it should convict. I'm in group one. Group one is filled with people who have good lives, generally good lives. I mean, there's maybe some bad things here and there, but you, you live pretty good. Keep in mind, this is easy because as an American, you live in the highest standard of living ever conceived. So your life is pretty good. You don't have any major problems. What this passage is warning us is what all of 1 Peter is warning us about. When your life is really good, you can start to think this is home. You can start to think you're already in the promised land. Because you know what? For us in group one, it is like a promised land compared to what other people live in. And so the danger is you take your eyes off of the real promised land. You take your eyes off of his kingdom. You take your eyes off of heaven. And you start getting concerned with and focusing on things that only relate to this world, that which is perishable. And this is extremely convicting for me. And if you're in group one, it sh this whole series should be convicting for you. Peter says, this is not your home. You are a sojourner. You're an exile. You need to learn to live what it's learned to be faithful in pagan Babylon. This is not the promised land. But yet when life's so easy and so comfortable, we just think it's the promised land. And if ever there's um, a slight discomfort, we in group one have the resources to do away with that slight discomfort. You know what I mean? So let's say you had a bad day and you come home and you go, man, I'm just going to Amazon Prime me something because it feels good. You know what I mean? It's okay to laugh because it's true. And the research is clear on this. When you're doing that, you're actually there's something wrong and you order something that you don't need and little happy chemicals come out in your brain and it makes you feel better for a little bit. And then you get addicted to the package coming because it comes like in 48 hours. And then you're looking on your doorstep, you're tracking it. And your brain is being wired to seek comfort in these. It's the same thing with, with alcohol or, or many other substances. And again, there's nothing wrong with using Amazon Prime. However, you have to be aware that if you're in group one, you have such a good life that the second you have any discomfort, you have the resources to deal with that discomfort in an earthly manner rather than turning to Christ. And you set your roots down in this place and you think it's home and you get comfortable. What Peter wants you to know is whatever human accomplishment you can obtain whatever your hands do, divorce from Christ and his kingdom, it will perish. You're dead, it goes with you. The car doesn't go with you, the house doesn't go with you, your riches don't go with you. Everything turns to dust, all flesh is like grass. And by the way, if you don't believe in God or any of this stuff, that is all, more true than anything for you. Because there's nothing beyond, there's nothing transcendent. Whatever you accomplish, no one's going to remember it in a hundred years. It goes the way of flesh. All flesh is like grass. So, for those of us in group one, we are to be convicted and reminded we're sojourners and exiles. This is not our home. Invest in that which is imperishable. Now group two. This passage is made to convict us, but God's word is powerful enough that it's also meant to comfort you if you're in group two. Group two is filled with people who have some heavy stuff in life. Life isn't good. There's some miserable things in your life. And all you have to do is read this church's weekly prayer list to know 
that there are people in this church going through some miserable circumstances. There are people getting ready to be transferred to hospice. Death is looking at them in the eyes. There are people who have physical ailments where their bodies ache. And not just like a little pain, but I'm talking about misery in your body. And you try to hide it because you don't want your family to see or your spouse to see or your kids to see. But you ache and hurt every day. There's some of you who, you don't know where your marriage stands. And it haunts you. It's a stress upon your back that's worse than any physical pain you've ever experienced. There's people at this church who have cancer diagnosis. There are people at this church who have young families, young moms and dads who are battling cancer. There are people at this church who literally are on treatments to kill their body, to kill that which is in their body so that they can survive. That's what cancer is. It's an invader that you have to kill the whole thing and come back from. And there are people who went through the treatments that just in these past weeks got the news that the cancer's still there. All the way from people in their 30s to their 70s. So I know just from the prayer list alone that there's a lot of people here that their lives are filled with some next level miserable circumstances. So how does a passage that convicts some comfort others? Well, it's because those of you in group two, you know this is not the promised land. You know you're a sojourner in exile. You are longing for the day for God to make things right. And what Peter wants to remind you of is that no matter what thing you're going through, whatever it is, and I mean whatever it is, this is true. If you are a Christian in this room, whether it's literal death, whether you're 40 years young and cancer is going to take you out, Peter says, remember, all flesh is like grass. Whatever your suffering may be, it is temporary. It is but a blip. It is here today, gone tomorrow, and you cannot fathom the glory that God has created for you. There is something waiting. There is a promised land of promised land in store for you. So no matter what you're going through, there is something on the other side. And even if death is knocking at your door, you can state confidently, death will not have the final word. Christ will. There is a truth of Peter and Isaiah. For Peter, he wants to give comfort to Christians saying, the Lord's word remains forever. Be encouraged. But he knows full well that some of them actually will die because of persecution. Peter himself will be killed for the faith. So it's not like trusting God's promises, everything's gonna be okay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying even if they kill you, the promises of the word promises of the Lord stand true, even if they kill you. When Isaiah is giving comfort to the exiles, he knows that some of them will die in exile. But he says, even the suffering in your life, no matter how strong it is, it is but a blip. It's like grass, here today, gone tomorrow, compared to what Christ has prepared for you. There is a glory awaiting you. Death does not have the final say. And so for those of you in group two, You need to know that, yeah, man, this, this earth can sometimes be a hell on earth. And your suffering could be immense. But it will pass. It will pass. God has prepared a home for you. And it's not this place. It's not here. God has prepared a home for you. In his family and in his kingdom. But just like the Israelites in exile, for us today, that can be hard to trust in, right? It can be very difficult. And so there's the rest of Isaiah 40 that I'd like to read to you, portions of it. Because Isaiah is going to tell the exiles, cling to God's promises, don't give up. But Isaiah knows full well that, man, it's, it's hard to trust God, especially when you've been in exile for 60 years. 
It's hard to trust in his goodness. It's hard to trust in his power. Can he deliver me? So when Isaiah tells the exiles to take comfort, he also wants to tell them something about God. Because sometimes we doubt the word of God because we doubt the God of the word. We doubt his character and his goodness. This is Isaiah 40, and if you're in group two, this is the word of the Lord for you today. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Go tell the Israelites the exile is about to be over. Behold your God. Now, who is this God that we worship? Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them, lead those that are with young. Do you see the almost conflicting images? This is on purpose. The first half of this, God is the warrior God with justice in his hands and his recompense goes before him. This is the mighty, powerful warrior God going to battle. But simultaneously, you have the shepherd who is gentle enough to identify the young sheep and bring them to his chest. Now you need both. Because if you have a big problem in your life, you need a God that's bigger than that, stronger than that, and more powerful than that. But you know that when you're suffering, you don't just want the power of a warrior God. You need the love of a father who can look after you like a shepherd and bring lambs close into his chest. Isaiah goes on. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? In other words, who is like this God? Has anyone else done this? And the rhetorical question is supposed to be met with a no. No one else has done this. What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales, on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Giant forests and giant trees in Lebanon. There's not enough fuel there for him. Nor are there the beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So Babylon in all of its might and glory, the wonders of the ancient world, it's like nothing. It's like emptiness compared to the glory of the Lord. For the first Christians in the Roman Empire, Rome and all of its architectural achievements, all of its military victory, all of its cultural accomplishments, Rome and all of that is like a flower that fades and dies compared to the eternal word of the Lord. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then the ending to the chapter, the word of the Lord for you today if you are in group two. Whether God gives you deliverance in this life or the next, the word of the Lord remains forever. His promises are unbreakable. You will set foot in the promised land. You will have an end to your exile you will have a delivery from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, Moses led all those people around in the desert. Did he ever get to go to the promised land? Sort of a trick question. The answer is yeah. He dies before he goes to the promised land. But God's promises are true. Jesus is transfigured in the Gospels. 
who, if you know the story, who appear before Jesus, Moses and Elijah. See, sometimes God's promises are not in this life, but we remain faithful knowing that he will bring deliverance. If you are a New Testament Christian, Peter is wanting to see your life running parallel with Jews who are in exile from the book of Isaiah. But also, the Jews who were in exile in Isaiah's day, that story is meant to parallel another story. The story of Moses and the wilderness wanderings. Oh, and that story is supposed to parallel another story. The first exile, Adam and Eve sin and run from God. And the entirety of the Bible is the story of man running from God and God pursuing, saying, I'm going to do everything I can to get you home. So if you're in group two today, hope is real and it will be delivered. You can take that to the bank. Not always in our timing. The ushers are going to come forward and we're going to pass out communion. It's the double-edged sword of the Bible. For some of us, this passage should convict us. What are we doing with our lives? And for others, it's no matter how bad my life gets, I'm going to the promised land. This is not my home. I'm a sojourner in exile. And the beauty of God's word is that it's, it's like all connected. You could just look at these references and find story after story telling the same story of man's exile out of the garden running from God and God pursuing us. For those of you who are in group one, like me, in this time be thinking about how you could change some things up in your life. It starts with habits. Most of the time when we waste our lives or invest in things that we shouldn't, it has to do with habits. For those of you in group two, as we enter into, your wor- into worship with a closing song and communion, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the end goal. When you focus on him, his word says that it doesn't make all the other problems disappear, but it gives you something to, to find the strength to take the next step in the midst of all of those problems. There is a peace that transcends human understanding. Doesn't make sense. I could try to explain it, but it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if there's a real God who can meet you where you're at. And so my prayer is that for those of you in group two, that God would meet you where you're at. The Lord knows every single person in this room. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. And he knows which of you should be convicted and which of you should be comforted. And so we ask, Lord, that you would convict those who need conviction and comfort those who need comfort. And I pray that your spirit, Lord, would meet people where they're at today. As we stand for communion, we remember the past where God was faithful to his promises. He brought about Jesus. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. So as we take this, remember God's fulfilled promise of Jesus. In the cup, Jesus says, represents his blood. You're supposed to drink it and commit to proclaiming his death and resurrection until he returns. In other words, the bread points us backwards to fulfilled promises in the past. And this one points us to the future, saying God still has some promises for the world that have yet to be fulfilled. And in those, Lord, we wait in eager anticipation. It's in your name we take this. Father God, convict, comfort, but may every single person in this room lift the name of your son Jesus high. May he be exalted in this place among your people. We love you, Lord.
How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ is my living hope. And who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living 